if you're running a company, you go to your staff, you walk those plants, you walk those communities, and you have a dialogue and conversation. And you really learn what is happening at the ground level that I believe will always inform how you think about the overarching strategy. Because there is no such thing as a Superman. You can't do it by yourself. I was told a long time ago that when the doors close, guess who's in charge of your school? Your teachers, not you, unless they buy into your philosophy and your vision or the vision, right? They won't execute against it. So you've got to get their buy-in into the work that you actually do. And I would argue that applies to any organization in any field of study. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Jean-Claude Brizard. Jean-Claude is president and CEO of Digital Promise, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization focused on shaping the future of education and advancing equitable education systems by bridging solutions across research, practice, and technology. He brings to this role an abundance of firsthand knowledge of what is and is not working in the education system. He spent 21 years as an educator and administrator within the New York City Department of Education and moved up to be the top leader of both Rochester City School District and Chicago Public Schools. Under his leadership, both systems saw substantial improvements in student performance. Jean-Claude also led education-focused initiatives for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, including efforts to close the racial and economic achievement gaps. The Carnegie Corporation of New York honored Jean-Claude in the 2023 class of Great Immigrants, Great Americans, a prestigious honor celebrating naturalized citizens who have enriched and strengthened our society. And I loved seeing that his class also included Alanis Morissette, Pedro Pascal, and Kehu Kwan, among other notable luminaries. I'll have to ask him later who his uh, favorite <laughs> person in the list was. He is a fellow of the Broad Center, a fellow of the Pahara Aspen Institute, and a member of the Aspen Institute Global Leadership Network. A commercial pilot and native of Haiti, Jean-Claude credits his parents, both of whom were educators, with inspiring him to pursue a career in education. Jean-Claude, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. Welcome to Chief Influencer. Anthony, thank you. It really is an honor to be here today. Well, I am just so excited to to dig in. You know, my mom was a teacher, and so I understand that uh, influence from a parent there you know, your commitment to making an impact in the world through education is very clear from your career. Early on, you were actually an educator at Rikers Island. I want to ask, how did that inform the work that you do today 
and the impact that you want to make in the world. And then, you know, my, my, both my parents were teachers too. Uh, and my mom is the one who convinced me to give teaching a try. Um, I fell into Rikers Island. And I say that because I went through the last and first style issues in New York City. So it wasn't a place I chose. I actually got placed there. But in many ways, it changed my, my trajectory, my direction, my professional direction in my life in many ways. Um, I met a young man, um, in, in that school who was, perhaps two, three years my junior. Um, you know, I was a young person at the time and he looked like me uh, physically, uh, couldn't do basic computation when I met him um, and we began to work together. And by the end of the semester, this kid went from not being able, be able to add and subtract to doing pre-algebra. So we lost, I think, a, a mathematician um, in, in the process. I had no idea what he did, never asked him, but in many ways changed my trajectory. And I said to myself, Okay, I'm going to go on the front end and see what I can do to stop this pipeline. Um, and I shall stay in education for a few years to do that. That was 35 years ago. Um, and I'm still in public education in the U.S. Wow. It must have felt pretty um, incredible to see somebody make such a such progress in such a short amount of time working with him. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, absolutely. You know, when I the way I met him, I was assigned to this class about 15 boys right age um uh, under under 18 and when i first walked into the class a bunch of kids grabbed chairs and surrounded me uh and said to me i said to we're going to take this guy out um and when i grabbed the chair too i said okay you'll take me out but i get at least one of you uh and they realized i wasn't scared and all the chairs were back down they all sat down they were testing me uh to see if i was genuine thankfully trying to educate them but the one kid that never stood up was this this young man um, so I gravitated toward him and I asked him why he didn't. He goes, I'm not into that kind of stuff. Um, so we begin to talk and then we begin to do work together, basic computation over and over again. And this kid's progress just kept accelerating. He hadn't been in school since the fifth grade. And it's it, it, it back to the story. When, when we toward middle end of the semester, I asked him, you change with the, my view of this place. What can I get you as a gift? Um, uh, he said, I said, something legal, please. And he said, ask, give me a sandwich. And uh, uh, I went off the island. He gave me an order that was, had must perhaps every deli meat you can imagine. Yeah. In those days, I was making $21,000 a year as a teacher. So I went off the island to Long Island City, bought him a $22 sandwich, came back, I never saw him again. He never came back from lunch. He was taken to maximum security prison. Uh, I was angry for three days. And all I kept hearing from the principal and the leadership in, in, in the building was, don't get attached to these kids. I don't know, Anthony, how you do this work without getting attached to the human beings you actually are serving. So in many ways, that experience 35 years ago has consistently shaped my experience and belief that every child can be amazingly successful. Yeah, wow. It also must make you think about how do people with, um, how do people end up where they end up. And yes. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I didn't enter that discussion with this young man, but as you can imagine, I kept thinking through, how do you have an 18 year old who can't read, who can't add, who can't seemingly do basic computation, end up in a place like Rikers? Uh, why is it a kid uh, stop going to school in the fifth grade? Where is the community? Where are the caretakers? Um, uh, all these things around family, around guidance, around uh, um, um, 
the protagonist in the community, the education system. So if you move beyond this individual, you begin to think about the system itself, not just again the school system, but all the support structures that could exist in the community or doesn't exist in the community. All these things came into question for me. And as I grew up in the system, in the education world in the US, or for that matter around the world, you begin to think about not just a one individual, but a system around them that perhaps, you know, failed in many ways for these young men. And in some ways, well, in many ways, we lost as a society because we lost this young man who could have been a leading mathematician in our world, frankly. Yeah. You know, obviously the impact you can make one-on-one with an individual, like helping this student advance in math is really powerful. But as a leader, when you're dealing with systemic issues, there are a lot of different stakeholders, you know, from employees to board members and community and policymakers. I'm wondering who are some of the most important people or groups that you have to influence to achieve the impact that you want to make in the world? And, you know, how's that changed um, since your career has advanced? Yeah, I have a colleague at uh, PolicyLink who often talks about this question of at what level uh, policy change. Uh, meaning that if you think about influencing the system, you know, where is your entry point and how are you thinking about the system? Because every system lives within another system. So you have to be really deliberate in thinking about what is it you're trying to influence. You know, as as a teacher, my cohort of students, um, in the case of Rikers, it was 15 young boys, right? In the case of a, of a, of a high school in Brooklyn, New York, George Westinghouse High School, I had five classes of 34 young people I cared about. As an assistant principal, it was a bit different. Uh, as I moved up the system, even as a school principal, I understood very well that I had to be principal teacher. My job was to make sure I, that my teachers understood, or my job was to support them in doing their work. Of course, as you cascade up the system, you keep looking at different layers. And of course, as a superintendent, I was worried about the state construct. I was worried about the community. I was thinking about the, the non-education professionals who had view of my of my young people. So as I grew and grew and fit at the Gates Foundation, I was looking at P to W, pre-K, early learning all the way to workforce. So I was looking at transitions from systems to systems. So you kept thinking about I kept thinking about really where do I want to influence? What levers do I want to pull um, to really influence the kinds of uh, solutions I was looking for. Uh, but I have to tell you though, the the view of the young person in the classroom and the key protagonist, the teacher or the parent that never left me. And, and you develop a sense of strategic agility to see the ground level and the 30,000 foot and be able to navigate back and forth to understand that what the real work is, what the real outcome you're looking for really has to do with that. Um, otherwise, I find that policymakers and folks at the system level tend to lose the trees and only fo- uh, focus on the forest. You're talking a lot about scale, like how do you find ways to scale solutions, but stay grounded in, you know, the people who you're trying to, who are, who are um, in the, you know, these systems. Um, how do you know who to influence when you want to address major systemic issues that require that type of scale? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, context matters. It matters a lot, right? Um, in that, I'll give you one example where 
that understanding in many ways was concretized. When I walked into Rochester, New York as a superintendent, uh, I was looking at the, the the network of schools within the system. I met an amazing researcher at the University of Rochester who did work on network design. And she did a study and what she showed me was which principles were talking to what principles. So uh, in one case I saw uh, about maybe eight to 10 schools who were not doing very well all in their own cluster talking to each other and talking to no one downtown. So the experts we hired to support principals were not being engaged. So it led frankly to the kind of design that we had to put in play to change that kind of orientation. So making sure you understand your influential nodes and understand how the system is designed and pushing very specific levers to change behavior I think it's been a big part of the effort. Um, even in Chicago, for that matter, we design our principal support. First of all, understanding what layer mattered the most at that level. And in our case, both in Rochester and Chicago, I couldn't influence teachers directly, uh, although we attempted to, but we influenced principals directly because we knew that they held the key, frankly, to the, the translation layer between the central office and what happens in classrooms. So context matters and being strategic as to where you enter, uh, I think is really, really critical. I love this um, idea of nodes that you're talking about. How do you find those nodes that are going to um, influence others so that you can focus your efforts as a leader on reaching and, in, well, I guess identifying first and then, you know, reaching and influencing those nodes. Can you give me some examples of what that has looked like in your career and what that does look like now? So let's go back to, to, to Rochester, New York, for example. So one, the systems design around principal support came from this idea of understanding who are your communication nodes, who are your influential nodes, even the informal influencers in the system were critical. Um, but one very specific example that may not have to do with principals, I remembered very clearly getting a call from the police chief and saying that there are allegedly two guns in the cafeteria of my largest high school in the city. So my deputy and I rushed to the school and we got there. There was about maybe 200, 300 kids in the cafeteria. The cafeteria workers at the gates down hiding behind the counters, about 30 police officers outside the door and all these kids milling around inside. So John, my deputy and I walked into the room and John is former military, um, was uh, I think um, a high ranking officer in the Navy. We walked in and we, we just assessed the situation and clearly identify very quickly which young person or young people were influential. And we went to them. It was five, seven kids. And we said, we know you guys have a lot of influence in here. Can you help me organize this place? And we give some of them a broom and said, let's sweep the cafeteria. Let's clean the cafeteria. Some of them were taken aback that they were quickly identified. But the lens we had developed was, what are the levers here? What are the nodes here mm. we can pull down? And let me tell you, within 15 minutes, we cleaned the cafeteria. We had the kids sitting down and they marched out orderly um, uh, to the police officers. And we found the two guns that were behind the vending machines. But again, the experience of a systems level design quickly came to life for, for the two of us. So for me, in that cafeteria, in, in a potentially very dangerous situation. But again, I think I found that to be really useful in, in a lot of different contexts uh, in my professional career. So you learned about this research uh, model, and then I mean you're you're practicing it in this case where you're in a cafeteria and you and your deputy are able to use that framework to figure out you know just by observing 
who those leaders are, who those influential nodes are, and target you know a handful of the students that can basically uh, drive the behavior of the entire room of hundreds. Absolutely. And you know, just, to, just to juxtapose that to my work at the Gates Foundation, and in some ways, even my work now at Digital Promise, if you're looking at the, the journey of a child from early learning through success in the workforce, and, and you're looking across systems, the question often are, what are the key protagonists? Would it be community leader, a, a church leader, or a superintendent of schools or head of a university? How do you get the right key protagonists in, in a place that will influence them to create this, this idea of aligned leaders and looking at the collective needs of a child, right? What I call the 360-degree view of a young person and see what parts of the system is touching them and influencing those parts to make sure that folks are coming together and, and collectively to solve uh, a challenge. Uh, too often in education, we see reading and math and that kind of proficiency push as the only lever. But we know if you look at a broader definition of success, which is what most parents care about, you have to go beyond uh, that kind of measure and look at really who is influencing, what needs to be influenced to create a systems approach to solving the needs of a young person. So the, the probably most influential people to students or young people are their families, their parents, right? Um, what have you learned about how to reach that audience? Yeah, so uh, I would also say, by the way, very influential are, are the young people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, themselves. that's probably <laughs> even more than parents. That's a good point. Yes. You know, but again, I'll go back to my days as a superintendent. Um, you know, one pastor um, early on in my career said to me, uh, the parents you're having difficulty finding are in my church every Sunday. If you want to talk to them, come to my church. Um, so I started doing that my second year as a super superintendent. And in Chicago, I basically copied the mayor's uh, campaign strategy around the church uh, in the city of Chicago. And I found myself in influential Catholic churches and in influential black churches, somewhere as big as 40,000 members, right? And one wow. in particular said to me that more than half of the congregation were employees of the school system. If you want to speak to your teachers or your principals, come here. Um, so just about every Sunday, uh, I was in someone's church or a couple of churches speaking about a, about a particular initiative, how I needed my own personal story, just to get the city galvanized. And I found that to be really and usually helpful in building a coalition of, of community leaders, including, by the way, when we had to do school, we designed school closures. Uh, these pastors were very, very uh, helpful frankly, in getting a rally or rallying around the community to get this to actually happen. Can I give you with me one more one more nugget? And I'll include kids in this one as well, too. Both in Rochester and Chicago, I, I did a monthly radio show. And in, in Rochester, it was both NPR and the Black radio station. In Chicago, it was WBEZ, was the, uh, the, the, um, the NPR station. Every month, we would start with a discussion between myself and, and, a, and a reporter, much like you're having a conversation, then for much of the hour, we opened the floodgates. The calls, the phones were open. Uh, my mayor thought I was crazy for doing this, but <laughs> I built so much political capital in that city, uh, in both cities, frankly, because I opened myself to this kind of open-ended dialogue about the schools, because my belief is that schools belong to the public uh, yeah. and they need to be involved. But every once in a while, we would do a calling show I was only for students. So yeah. no adults can call. And we sort of 
in some ways stack 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 the the the, uh, the chairs by simply having schools hold meetings of young people and having them call collectively to the radio show. Sometimes it was about the math curriculum. Sometimes it was about the lunch. In other words, that was not tasty. It was awful kind of lunch, which, by the way, even things we actually addressed. When I showed up in one school after the call and actually had lunch with the kids in that school complaining about the lunch, I walked in. They were shocked. So my point very simply, you can have these nodal conversations and influential conversations, but you got to put your money where your mouth is. So the yeah. fact that I showed up in a school, sat with the kids, um, and actually had lunch with them, and we begin to redesign the lunch program, uh, just builds credibility. Well, it's such a powerful reminder to leaders, right? That one, sometimes you know you got to go where your people are, and like you gave the example of the pastor and going to the churches. Um, if you want to influence people, not only is it effective to go where they are because you may not, you know, they may not come to you, but it also says something about you as a leader that I'm willing to come to your place rather than have you come to mine. So that I think is a really excellent takeaway. And then the willingness to take unfiltered questions. I'm sure you must talk to other leaders or communications folks that say, you're crazy just taking calls like, you know, what are you thinking? Something bad could happen. Well, I mean, what do you say to people who just raise the red flag of risk management around those types of things? Yeah, I, I don't know how else you are successful, both in terms of doing it with your own employees, your own staff, and doing it with, and if you're a more public organization, doing it with the public. I watch politicians hold these town halls uh, all of the time. I mean, they do it. Uh, and I'm sure there's a bit of anxiety, a pit in your stomach as you walk into a room and you may face uh, uh, an angry crowd or whatever it may be. But the best way to change feelings is by talking about it and allowing people to talk. I'll tell you frankly, there was one organization in Chicago uh, in Brunsville called Coco. Um, they were quite uh, aggressive in their push. But every month I went and we had a meeting with the community. And I have to tell you, every once in a while, they would push a nugget that was absolutely true. And one example was, you know, one parent said to me, you know, my kid was in this school and you guys closed it to move her to a better school. You closed that school and move her to another school. So my kid went to three elementary schools between kindergarten and fifth grade. I mean, that that is that that, that is disruptive to a young person's life. So that led quickly to an overarching uh, um, strategy around how school redesign, our school closure. Um, so sometimes these things, yes, you get beaten up when you get there. I had one person yell at me at the airport. You know what? I sat with him and we had a conversation. Uh, that's the public face of this. If you're running a company, again, you go to your staff, you walk those plants, you walk those communities, and you have a dialogue and conversation, and you really learn what is happening at the, at the ground level. I believe will always inform how you think about the overarching strategy. If there is no such thing as a Superman, you can't do it by yourself. Um, I was told a long time ago that when the doors close, guess who's in charge of your school? Your teachers, not you. Uh, unless they buy into your philosophy and your vision or the vision, right? They won't execute against it. So you've got to get their buy-in into the work that you actually do. And I would argue that applies to any organization in any field of study. Yeah. So how have you taken those lessons of trying to reach and connect with and influence teachers and parents and students to the work you do now as the leader of Digital Promise? Yeah, so we talk a lot about um, the idea of impact here. Um, so we don't do a lot of direct work 
with schools, but we do a lot of indirect work with schools and school systems. So we think about, and we also have what I call again, strategic agility, which is that we do a lot of demonstrations. We work with um, schools and districts, and then we cascade up the system and look at the enabling conditions required for that to be successful. So our work really is informed by the work of practitioners, whether it be again, a state leader, a city leader, or for that matter, a school leader or a classroom leader. We're very much in touch with the ground, uh, but we don't stay there, we go back and forth. So we think broadly about, again, so one of our goals, for example, is 75% of systems having the tools and information they need to create the conditions for success. The only way you can do that, Anthony, is to know what the pinch points are for the school leader and the classroom teacher. Otherwise, you're tossing policy and tools in, in the thin air. Um, so you don't ground yourself into the challenges and experiences. We even have this thing called the challenge map, where we look at uh, the crowdsource from practitioners. What are the research questions and challenges they're facing? And that mm-hmm. drives simply how we look at how we come up with solutions and tools for, for the sector. Uh, in one case, for example, we're about to launch this in San Diego. We're taking a county-wide challenge, which is a skills gap, right? Lots of great industries in San Diego. And the question is, excuse me, are the, are the young people who grew up there partaking in the economic vitality of that region? And then how do we come up with a solution? But again, we are putting together as an initial meeting thanks to a local funder, uh, a set of protagonists, about 26 individuals, uh, UC San Diego, superintendents, workforce boards, community leaders, uh, and we're going to put them together. We've been bringing on two individuals from Dallas who are doing a lot of this work who provide the use case. So again, it's having these key influencers in a room and creating this collective effort so we understand the systemic needs as well as the ground-level needs uh, of, of young people. When you are focused in just one community, you know, you still can never be everywhere, you know, at once, but, you know, you can drive to a school like you've shared, you can be on the local radio show. Um, Now with the work that you're doing, which is really global in nature, I mean, you have to use technology. Uh, Can you talk about your view as a leader of how you can use technology to expand your reach, but also to engage people in kind of a two-way dialogue? Absolutely. You know, I see technology as an as an enabler. Um, so many people put technology first, and then they go back to the challenge and the work second. It's got to be the converse. So, for example, in the school system, I often ask superintendent, what is your coherent instructional framework? How are you thinking about teaching and learning? That then drives how can tech support this kind of challenge, whether it be reading, whatever it may be. Now we're looking at artificial intelligence, not in the sense of it being a, a way for kids to cheat. How does it elevate the pedagogical practice? How does it elevate what teachers do, what principals do? We're even looking at data. One thing that we know very well in schools, for that matter, frankly, across, across systems, is that we often are data-rich and information-poor. There's a lot of qualitative and quantitative data that comes into systems, right? Whether it be looking at, I don't know, um, healthcare system to education systems, right? But having artificially or artificial intelligence engines supporting the analysis uh, um, sort of uh, uh, allows the protagonist, the teacher, the leader uh, from having to 
living the drudgery of data and analytics, but instead translating information to practice or to action. Um, so all of this is enabled by the kinds of stuff that we're seeing in AI and education as an example. And there's so many other tools and technology that we certify as, as an organization um, to make sure that it is solving a particular challenge. Let me give you one last example. We have a structure here called the Learner Variability Navigator. A lot of folks in education talk about personalization. Most teachers don't have the where at all or the, the, the time, frankly, to really personalize instruction for every kid, uh, especially neurodiverse kids. We think technology can be an amazing enabler. So this Learner Variability Navigator, which is now being integrated into massive uh, uh, learning management platforms, takes a learning science and a science of development it makes it actionable in a way that leverages tech and in the future AI to tell the teacher, if you have these students, this is how you get individualized, how you get personal with every with every student. Because Anthony, I live by this adage that every child is a work of art. We have to create masterpieces. Yeah. That's amazing how you can, you know, build something that can scale um that type of thinking and, and application of that for teachers. What about social media? Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I'm one who gravitated towards social media very early on in my life. Because uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I saw the full potential, but I saw the potential in a sense. I was connecting with friends from high school, folks I hadn't seen for a, very, for a very long time. But at least in my work, I have to tell you, and I'll start with Chicago, we hired uh, the system's first ever social media director. Uh, I think we had the foresight to say that this is an amazing way of connecting with our community. Uh, and our community was local and national and global. So we did things like Facebook Lives, Twitter Lives, uh, our LinkedIn Lives. We did on a regular basis. Even now, uh, at Digital Promise with our comms team and others, we do these LinkedIn Live conversations because we know even if you're not attending, the fact that the recording can be shared later on is really critical. But in each instance, we tend to be careful about the audience we're trying to reach. So in the case of Chicago, for example, uh, before we launch our teacher evaluation system, we're tagging folks from across the country who are doing amazing work, key leaders in the industry who are looking at how do you really move and think about teacher efficacy to be part of the conversation. Uh, all those were really critical. In some cases, we looked at voting records. Uh, and wanted to target a particular set of zip codes. Um, and we basically launched in that direction. Uh, and the parents we talked to were from specific neighborhoods in the city. So we could slice and dice this in a way to really make sure that we were reaching the audience we we're looking to actually reach. And sometimes the panel of folks we have in the conversation also brings on those folks. As you can imagine, too, hashtags and tagging people just keeps takes your, your, your circle and just keeps increasing the, the, the reach that you're actually having across. But I, 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 I um, post on LinkedIn and says, um, um, I mean, all the time. I have my leaders, frankly, uh, my comms team working with our leaders, make sure their voices are amplified, um, including the reports that we generate. Otherwise, it lives on a, on a, on a, on a shelf. So making sure that we are reaching the people, I think is exactly what we're going to get to. And, and I saw that your organization, you have really leaned into LinkedIn Live as a tactic, kind of harkening back to what you were saying about the other live streaming that you've done on topics like digital equity. And curious if you just talk a little bit more about, um, you know, why you have 
chosen like LinkedIn as one of the platforms that you want to focus on for digital promise and even your thoughts around LinkedIn Live in particular? Yeah, LinkedIn, we find to be an amazing platform in particular to reach educators or folks who may care about digital equity uh, in education for that matter, right? So um, when you look at my following or our following on LinkedIn, it tends to be both the influencers of the kind of bodies of work that we actually do uh, or people who are in education. It ranges from teachers all the way to superintendents. So it's an amazing platform. Whereas Twitter, you know, Facebook, you're reaching a much broader set of audience. Uh, LinkedIn we find to be really, really critical in that. What's great about LinkedIn in particular, though, is that you can do the LinkedIn Live and you draw an audience. Even if it's two or 300 people or even 50 people, the multiplication effect after Mm. Um, I think it's just that much more broad uh, and we can reach thousands of people even in sharing the links uh, done so frankly from the kind of uh, expertise that we've gotten from folks like you and others who are teaching us how to do that really, really, really well. And again, not just the CEO, but making sure this is cascading across the organization. And there are, again, tools of the trade that we've learned and, and really leveraging a much broader audience through LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, I often say, you know, leaders, if, what do you do if CNN calls, right? Of course, you send a person, you can't send your logo. But a lot of organizations, when it comes to LinkedIn, they just send their logo and they don't think about investing in their people. And so it's pretty great that not only are you focused on your presence, but you're investing in the presence of other leaders at your organization who are experts and thought leaders because they have their own networks, they have their own connections, and, you know, people trust people. So at it really makes a difference when you get the message out and you can obviously see it in terms of digital promises, growth and the partners that you're establishing all over the place and the work that you're doing. So um, yeah. it's, it's uh, I hope folks will look at your uh, yes. profile and digital promises profile as, as part of that. Just check out, check out what you're doing there. Thank you. Thank you. You know, so one, one last layer of this, which is I think about LinkedIn too, is that you get the kind of professional audience that you're looking for in education um, which is absolutely terrific uh, and, and um, supportive. And even when we have these convenings and we do quite a bit of it, we always encourage people to post on LinkedIn um, because, again, the multiplication effort and the fact that colleagues see perhaps who may not be part of our um, congregations, right, um, uh, to see what we do uh, across different uh, teams within the organization. Yeah. I want to kind of, um, you know, I think this kind of builds on our talk of social media and like sort of the importance of the personal brand. But today it's impossible, I'd say, for a leader to keep their professional brand and their personal brand completely separate. I mean, this has gotten so intertwined and you know, it can be really powerful when you bring a story and a life experience to the work you're doing like you've shared. Um can you tell us more about how your own story as an immigrant from Haiti has, you know, not only influenced your work, but help you, helped you influence others? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. I have a colleague here who often says that I don't know how to separate my personal from my professional life. I, I would argue uh, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I'm married to an individual who is also an educator. Um, so sometimes we go to dinner, all we talk about is education in the U.S. or around the world for that matter. Um, but you know, what's really important is that I think when you do do it and you do it um, um, in a way that's genuine, um, you build even more credibility. 
because this is not a job. You know, it's heart and head that comes together and really caring about the future of a nation, the future of a society, and you're working really hard to actually make it happen. That kind of genuineness uh, shows up when you bring your personal story and your personal narrative, frankly, to the work you actually uh, are doing. You know, but being an immigrant, even though I spent um, early years in Haiti, 11 years, um, and I helped launch a, a program called Teach for Haiti, I'll say for IET, Teach for Haiti Translated directly, um, what that has given me is a view of the global, uh, uh, both assets and challenges we have in education. And so often Americans, in, in America, we think we are unique uh, in the challenge. It is so much more common. We have so much more in common than different. Uh, I attend this thing annually called the Education World Forum in London. About 120 nations are represented, the Minister of Education. And when you listen to Malaysia and you listen to South Africa or Nigeria or Uruguay, you begin to understand that we are in this together and there are lessons to be learned across. So this, I think, the fact that I am an immigrant has allowed me to think beyond um, um, just the U.S. experience. Let me add one more layer, perhaps, which might be really important too, around context and narrative. So when I was uh, in, in Rochester, Obama was elected, I got a call from the media for a quote, and they said, so we have a black president, right? And I said, that's amazing. I said, when I was a kid, my president was always black, so I don't know <laughs> if this is a revelation. Um, I said, don't put that, I'll give you a quote. But my point was that, you know, what I saw, I had different opportunities. Uh, I had seen a president who looked like me. I had seen teachers who looked like me. Um, so that gave me a different view of what's possible. So as an immigrant, seeing that, I bring that kind of narrative and orientation to the U.S., especially when we're dealing with young people who may not see a role model, uh, one to understand that I can be a role model for them, but for them to see beyond the opportunity ceiling that they may have created or has been created for them, that anything is possible uh, yeah. and you work towards that. So that immigrant experience really has shaped also how I think about um, success. And speaking of being a role model, as we said at the top, the Carnegie Corporation of New York recently named you to a very prestigious list, uh, great immigrants, great Americans. Uh, what what was that like for you to be included with such yeah. incredible people and obviously you being deserving among them? You know, it was... Um... It was a bit of a shock. I mean, there's not much hubris <laughs> where this person lives. Um, and if I develop hubris, my wife always, always puts me back and says, like, no, this is not about arrogance. This is about real work. She always reminds me of the hard work that we need to do. Um, but just when I sat down and began to look at the list of names, so initially when I got the email, I was like, oh, this is really amazing, right? Uh, but when I actually got the list of names, I was like, oh, my God. Um, and you see Alanis Morissette, you see Pedro Pascal, on, on the list. And I remember watching the Goonies when I was a kid. So to see uh, actors from that really in many ways um, gave me energy um, and, and even reinforced my purpose in making my country better, right? And understanding, of course, where, where I was, came from. But, you know, my wife was really happy to see Pedro Pascal <laughs> as one of those examples. Um, but just to see being in that milieu um, in many ways gave me a ton of energy to continue and to keep fighting. That gave you some extra street cred with your wife since she likes yes. the actor and you're on the, you know, the list. Of, that's good. Always, you know, these things help at home too. Yes. Um, as you think about all of the different ways that 
you know, leaders can try to influence others. I mean, I think sometimes it can be overwhelming, right? Because this this other peer of mine has a, a book or a podcast or, a, you know, they people are, you know, probably see you're on that list and they're feeling that, you know, FOMO and, and intimidation from that. Um, I know that you've used a framework from good to great to try to think about where does one focus their efforts? How do you focus your efforts to make sure that with our limited time and energy, we can, you know, um, put our energies in the right places. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's the hedgehog concept within good to great, which I, I found to be really an important part of that book. You know, so many people try to boil the ocean um, and, and try to be all things to everybody. Uh, none of us, again, are super superman or superwoman. We can't do this by ourselves. Uh, and when I was a my, my uh, as a superintendent, my my mentor at the time um, said to me, "This is a relay race uh, that you're going to start, and someone else will pick up and continue." Make sure you understand that and do that. Uh, the second thing, even within digital promise, within this nonprofit world that we are in, and watching the massive elephant of of both assets and challenges we need to solve, there is always this. Um, and I've watched nonprofit leaders try to do this. There's this orientation: I got to solve it none of us can solve it, right? Uh, so to think about where you fit within that within that uh, context construct and how you can partner with others in doing this, how you can influence um, you know, like-minded organizations and leaders in collecting uh, or coalescing uh, uh, initiatives together. Because I'll tell you, even in my work when I was at the Gates Foundation, I watched this happen in places like Dallas and, and um um, uh, Tacoma, Washington. In Tacoma, there are 350 nonprofits pulled together by, by a group called Graduate Tacoma to solve a challenge around getting kids to post-secondary institutions, right? In Dallas, it started out with, you know, um, as, as, a, as, a, as an early learning challenge, but they quickly came to understand this is a an economic mobility challenge. How do we rally a community together and pulling in the same direction? But again, selective effort, is something I've come to really believe in, but to understand what is your hedge on? What do you do well? Uh, what is your piece of the puzzle? And how can you influence perhaps other pieces of the puzzle? But you have to understand what you do really, really well and do it damn well. Then you can really begin to work with others in solving a collection or collective collective challenge. Yeah, I think finding that that zone <laughs> is is such an important thing for leaders to, to hone in. Um, yeah. I, you know, I want to ask, uh, as we sort of wrap up here, a lot of chief influencers tell us that they get inspiration, not only from their direct industry peers, but from unexpected places. And I'm wondering if you can share where some of the places, maybe outside of the usual suspects, like other superintendents or nonprofit leaders, um, where you found inspiration for the work that you do. Yeah, I'll come back to my Rikers Island story in, in a second, but... I, I tend to look for, um, you know, leaders who have that kind of um, mindset, who have both the um, the intelligence and, more importantly, the emotional intelligence to do the work. You can tell when someone really has really good EQ, and I try to listen to what they do, uh, whether it be in a podcast or reading a book or an article or even listening to them live. Uh, all these things come back to me, um, and I have found that, frankly, in – uh, in presidents, in in uh, governors, I have found that in uh, 
industry leaders, right? Uh, I'm always fascinated by by Reed Hastings and the Netflix story. You don't, you don't have to love Reed Hastings, but how he's been able to um, um, wax and wane and grow and morph, right? As it becomes uh, more successful. Uh, even Reed Hoffman in building of LinkedIn, for example, you listen to the stories. I've, I've met both of them and they've been my moderators when I was at the Aspen Institute. Um, one was my wife's moderator, Reed Hastings was mine. But just listen to their personal story and you see and understand the strategy and how to look at things have always been hugely helpful. But I'm going to go back to this idea of grassroots and understanding, frankly, why some of these things are so critically important because these folks live on the ground level and they, they've been really influential. So my parents were one. Uh, folks, my mom and my dad, I listened to quite often uh, when they were alive and doing this kind of work. Sometimes, yes, it is. I'm not very religious, but I love, for example, Father Flager. Uh, in Chicago, an amazing Jesuit who takes on massive challenges, even though he has a little church on the south side of Chicago, but he actually sits with the Dalai Lama. That's how powerful this guy's gotten. So I love listening to Father Flager. But when you think about, for example, my story with Rikers, me, if I never met this young man, I call him Trevor, um, I would have been doing things, a very different line of work. I was a chemistry major. Um, these young men showed me a challenge that we had to solve. And in many ways, Trevor changed my life and has influenced a lot of ways I think about, again, as I mentioned earlier, what happened to this young man and what it meant for the system around him that failed him. And frankly, the work that we need to do to make sure that we don't have many more Trevors uh, showing up in our world. Right now, we have way too many of them. Um, at the same time, Trevor taught me about how we need to redefine success that reading and math proficiency, high school graduation are means to an end and not the end means. So that's kind of one nugget of an experience. So it helps me cascade frankly, the systems work that we actually need to do. Yeah, gosh. Well, what comes across really strongly is you see that there are these systemic challenges, but that you have this hope and that that story, um, you know, that there is a possibility to, address these challenges and there is, you know, there is promise and, and digital promises. That's all about what you're doing in your current leadership role. Um, Jean-Claude, for folks who want to follow more of what you are doing, they can go to digitalpromise.org or follow the organization on LinkedIn or any of the socials. They can follow you on LinkedIn, Jean-Claude Brizard, and any other place that we should uh, be paying attention yeah, I mean, so LinkedIn, I think, is is, uh, is primary. I use that more than anything else. Uh, it's a great way to know what is happening uh, within Digital Promise and what we actually are doing. And I think we are a great entry point to the kinds of overall, uh, both local and national and global challenges and think of the assets that we see in education. So amazing entry point. Please ping us. We'll be happy to engage you in conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And congratulations on your recognition as a chief influencer. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.